being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is premium episode 24 the world of walter breen schizophrenia numismatics super kids science fiction the society for creative anachronisms pedophilia wandering bishops and magic and I am recording from the West Kingdom. Content warning, this episode deals necessarily with incest, pedophilia, and child abuse throughout the episode. As always, I never try to be graphic, but this is some pretty dark shit. Like, as dark as it gets in some ways, it's not a fun episode. Please don't listen to it unless you're in a good headspace. I'm not trying to be a care lord here. like take care of yourself. I think that there is some hope in the story and I'm not going through this for no reason. I do think it's important to talk about. That said, take care of yourself, be safe, and listen responsibly. No, I'm not being like facetious. To set the stage here, February 27th, 2021, I wrote a Twitter thread on the possibility that Jeffrey Epstein, being a gifted child, might have attracted the attention of intelligence much earlier than is assumed. I wrote about the experiences of Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry. I wrote about a weird guy named John H. Bowen. To a lesser extent, I talked about Whitley Strieber and Especially, I talked about the experience of a young guy named Jack Sarfati. For those who don't recall, or even want an update, Jack Sarfati is a physicist. He is interested in the weirder side of things. We're talking like quantum physics. He's a professor. I think he's retired now. As a child, he was a boy genius. He participated in the Civil Air Patrol, just like Lee Harvey Oswald and Barry Seal. Jack Sarfati received a full-ride scholarship. Among other things, he also received a phone call from something he called the God Phone, which was said to be a UFO which told him that he was one of 400 young, bright, receptive minds. He doesn't quite explain who, you know, what the purpose of the phone call was, but he did say that it was supposed to be a UFO calling him, right? Which is a weird story, but we know that Jack Sarfati was involved in an after-school program which was run by Walter Breen. Now, at the time, reading it, I was like, okay, who's Walter Breen? I didn't, you know, know anything, basically. So I come to find out that Walter Breen is one of the most prominent numismatists in the entire world. Breen wrote tons of books on coin collecting. He also wrote science fiction. He was married to the more famous fantasy author, Marion Zimmer Bradley. Bradley wrote all of those Avalon books. Like, you might have seen them in, like, school libraries or something. That's where I saw them first, I'm pretty sure. Walter Breen was also a Mensa dork. He was a founder of Nambla, 
and he was also a prolific and dangerous pedophile. Now, I think the way I found out about this stuff, and I've always been made that pretty clear, is through Peter Lavenda's book, Sinister Forces. I want to say volume one. So, I found out through that book, but then through other sources as well. Now, Walter Breen was working for Sandia National Laboratories, which is a Lockheed Martin and Honeywell subsidiary, and that he was engaged in carrying out parapsychological research studies of New York City gifted children. Now, that alone is enough to drive you or anyone absolutely insane, especially if you know anything about Sandia National Laboratories. In Sarfati's words, I was part of a group of super kids, these genius kids that were being studied at the Columbia University Laboratory of William Sheldon and one of his assistants, a Walter Breen. We're talking like 1953. It was also connected to the government. It had something to do with what later became Sandia Labs in New Mexico. There were these experiments and they would just sit there with the kids, you know, trying to get them to move objects. We never moved anything, but there was a whole program going on about this. Also, they talked about aliens and flying saucers, trying to figure out how they fly, and all that kind of stuff. It was a lot of science fiction. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, dear listener, right off the bat, but in this thread I made, you know, approaching over a year ago, I speculated that Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, like Jack Sarfati, had a lot of parallels. They were both Brooklyn gifted kids. They were both math prodigies. They were both gifted at music. Now, I asked if Epstein ever got a call from the God phone, or was he on the radar of intelligence in any way? And there's no good answer to that question, not to my knowledge anyway. There's a lot of smoke, but no fire, in my opinion. Or at least not that we know. Either way, the thread got a lot of attention, and it sort of led me to starting the show. Ed Opperman had me on, Subliminal Jihad had me on, both to talk about this thread that I made. And I found through making it and later, that I really enjoyed digging through and doing research, presenting it, etc, etc. So in some ways this was one of the weirdest things I've ever found, and I have always, like, I'm very interested in this story, right? Now, not long after, on February 23rd, 2021, a TED Talk asshole investor and self-proclaimed expert in hybrid warfare and threats to democracy tweeted not in response to me, mind you. You want a real fun dink? Donald Barr was a mentor to my dad in the early 1960s when he was running a program for talented students at Columbia. My dad was recruited into it for his perfect SAT score. Unquote. Now, Donald Barr also hired Jeffrey Epstein at the Dalton School in Epstein's early career. So, in some ways this is more evidence to link Epstein and Sarfati in some sort of mutual 
program studying gifted kids, right? Like, this is crazy stuff. Now, all of this is prelude to New Year's Eve 2021. I'm chillin', as you might expect. We're going into the year 2022, right? And of all the days to... <laughs> name search himself, Jack Sarfati suddenly appears to have discovered my thread, and he started making comments on it. My theory is that he is a lonely old man who was alone on New Year's Eve name searching himself on Twitter, but that's just a theory, right? Either way, he starts commenting on New Year's Eve of all things. Most of the comments that he made on my thread were rude, right? And I'll go through a couple. No, no one has ever accused me of being petty, why do you ask? So he said, mind you, he's like, I want to say in his 70s maybe, either way. <laughs> he pointed out that he was 14 when he got the God phone phone call, not 17 as I sort of implied, not stated. Which is fair, like, the timeline was a little bit murky in my mind, not least of which because his memoir is incredibly... It's written like a crazy person, I will say that. And I will say this, I didn't exactly intend to map out Jack Sarfati's movements <laughs> in the 1950s when I set out to write the thread, nor did I have the keen eye for detail that I would attempt to achieve in later threads and podcasting, which, mind you, is still kind of a low bar if we're comparing to, like, journalists or historians, still. So Jack Sarfati got very mad at me for mixing up Cornell and Columbia. Mind you, I mixed up, according to his memoir, which place he was at, not that I have the two mixed up in general, which would be a fair thing to get mad about if academia is your identity. Like, if that's your thing, that's cool, man. Like I said, you know, I was working with the source material I had, which happened to be Sarfati himself. Sarfati also felt the need to write, Walter Breen never molested us kids in early 1950s, in my presence at least which is one hell of a qualifier to tack on to the second half of that sentence, might I say. To say, he never molested us kids, that's cool, but you can tell that he's simply not sure enough, so he adds, in my presence at least, which undermines the first half of the sentence. We will revisit that statement, oh, probably in like two hours. Sarfati then commented, Epstein, 14 years younger than me. We never overlapped. No evidence of Epstein with Breen is there. Which I had never suggested, because I knew enough to know that Walter Breen moved to California by that time. Like, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I asked if intelligence was aware of Epstein, not if Walter Breen interacted with him, or molested him or something. Then, with absolutely no evidence, and probably irresponsibly, Sarfati tweeted, I think that story about Epstein and Barr is false. Which, I mean, 
Maybe Jack Sarfati knows something that I don't, but the Epstein-Barr connection was reported by a bunch of sources. So, why I feel the need to say that, especially with no evidence? He also called me a couple names. I think he called me shit for brains. That was, that was a good one. Sometime later, he deleted many of these comments. But my pettiness knows no bounds. And I had always meant to revisit the world of Walter Breen anyway, which drove me to read this book, The Last Closet, The Dark Side of Avalon by Moira Grayland. Moira Grayland is the daughter of Walter Breen and Marion Zimmer Bradley. I should say up front that Moira Grayland is a survivor of extreme abuse. Consequently, some of her autobiography includes some beliefs that I would call inarticulate. I won't go into it because I respect her as a person, just know that, like any author, I do not cosign or agree with every opinion that she writes in the book. That said, her memoir was moving and very hard to read. It's like a child called it, but for child sexual abuse. I read the book because it's one of the best primary sources on Walter Breen. Separate from that, it's a moving book about living with the emotional wreckage of that kind of abuse. Moira Grayland became an accomplished musician, she's a harpist, and it's inspiring to see that she overcame, to some degree, what she had to live through. At the end of this story, we will give her the last word. But for most of this episode, we are going to talk about her deeply diseased parents. And yes, I frequently cross-reference what she says with, you know, other sources when and where available.
So we might as well introduce Marion Zimmer Bradley first. She was born to Scottish immigrants in New York in 1930. She was sexually abused by her father as a child. Marion Zimmer Bradley showed signs of being gifted in several fields. She was very into opera singing, aspired to be an opera singer. She also wrote fiction. One of her early novels, which she wrote when she was 18, was about a love affair between a carny and an underage boy. Like, set at a carnival, right? Additionally, Bradley wrote a series of pornographic lesbian novels for an interesting publishing house, Monarch Books. Perhaps you've heard of it? They specialized in pulp fiction. Now, don't get too dizzy now because we have a long way to go. Marion Zimmer Bradley attended what is now the University of Albany. She married a pretty normal-sounding guy, uh, relative to the rest of her life at least, and she attended Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas. She graduated with three majors, English, Spanish, and Psychology. She actually wrote a translation of a Lope de Vega play, actually, which was published. While she was attending school in Texas, she got into spiritualism and Rosicrucianism. We will leave her there in Texas while we switch over to Walter Breen's early life, and then we will have them meet. I must quote Moira here. I will be telling my father Walter's story from his perspective since there is no way to verify or disprove any of the claims beyond his military service record. I have drawn from what Walter told me and from his own autobiography as well as what his friends and his brothers have shared with me. I am not claiming that his account is true or untrue, only that it is what he believed. I cannot pretend to reconcile all the things he told me. All I can do is transmit what he said and leave it to you to figure out what happened. My words here. Much of this comes from what I believe is Walter Breen's autobiography, which she quotes from, and I cannot find it published anywhere. So this seems to be about as primary of a source on Walter Breen as is available, at least to my knowledge. Walter Breen was born in San Antonio, Texas, on September 5th, 1930. He says he was found abandoned on a truck. Like a foundling, an orphan. Breen believes that his birth name was James Douglas Hedrick. He thought that he was the illegitimate child of a young Juilliard pianist. This is somewhat in dispute. Some people assert that Breen was actually just straight born to the parents that he claims adopted him. Quite young, this person was adopted by Walter Breen Sr., a traveling salesman, and his wife, Nellie Mel Breen. Walter Breen, the son, not the adoptive father, detested his supposed adoptive parents, who were hellfire Catholics. I imagine being Catholic in Texas in the 1930s would be something of a trip. So he probably wasn't exaggerating, but Breen said that they were violent and overbearing about their faith. There were signs that Walter Breen was a genius. According to Breen, 
he learned to read at three years old. For whatever reason, Walter Breen did, in fact, have three different birth certificates with three different years and locations. He said that this was because his mother obtained two fraudulent ones so that she could enroll him in the Air Force sooner, and because his adoptive mother and father eventually divorced. After the divorce, Breen's adoptive mother and new father, stepfather, moved to Wheeling, West Virginia. They appear on the 1940 census, located there, right? Then Breen was put in a Catholic orphanage. Breen compares this orphanage to a concentration camp. He says he was beaten with coat hangers and electrical cords while living there. Walter Breen says that the only love he experienced at this time was with a priest at the orphanage. He never gave any other details other than to say that it was a transformative experience. Even though Breen had a chaotic upbringing, he graduated elementary school, all grades, all at once, in 22 months. Like, I want to say around when he was like 10 or 11. When Breen was 11, his adoptive mother, she gave him to a Trinitarian's monastery in Maryland. He had to receive a special dispensation to go there because of his age. He said simply, like, it didn't work out, and he was shortly sent back to the orphanage. He attended Central Catholic High School in Wheeling, West Virginia, he graduated high school in 1943 at age 14. From there, he enrolled in the Army Air Force. He was just 16. Uh, he enrolled in 1946 using the aforementioned false birth certificate. He was sent to the San Antonio Aviation Cadet Center, which is now known as Lackland Air Force Base. It would seem that San Antonio High Strangeness predated the import of Operation Paperclip Nazis. That's my contention, anyway. I'm sure there's a lot of other weird stuff going on in San Antonio. Now, the recruiting documents we have, they list him as 6 foot 1 inch tall, hazel eyes, brown hair, 144 IQ, 2020 vision. Now, an IQ of 144 is very high, which puts him in the top 0.02% of the population, or roughly 1 in 600 people. Either way, Walter Breen only lasted two months in the army because he was gay-bashed almost to death after his fellow cadets discovered he was a homosexual. He was hospitalized with major head injuries. At the same time, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, along with a formal diagnosis of homosexuality. You know, for people who don't realize, that was a diagnosis at the time. Walter Breen had photographic memory, like actual confirmed photographic memory. People would test it, right? It was even a parlor trick. People would hand him a random phone book opened up to a certain page, he would read it briefly, hand it back to them, and then recite the entire page. Now, Walter Breen, he would tell stories that he developed this photographic memory after a traumatic head injury from a plane crash during World War II. 
He wasn't a veteran. He wasn't in the military during World War II. So the story he would tell everyone was a lie. He also seemed to have had some measure of good memory before he joins the U.S. military based on his academic career thus far. That said, possibly he believed that his photographic memory abilities came out stronger after the head injury. I'm not sure if that's what normally happens. I'd have to leave that to the experts, right? What's more, and this gets back to the San Antonio thing, Walter Breen and Marion Zimmer Bradley both believed that they had been abducted by aliens. I believe that Breen's experience dated to around the San Antonio time. Make of that what you will. Right? Whitley Strieber had a lot of his weird experiences in and around San Antonio, though decades later, right? Now, Walter Breen did not receive the typical Section 8 mentally unfit for military service that homosexuals would typically receive. His discharge papers list inadaptable for military service due to both his head trauma and his schizophrenia. In 1947, Breen began attending St. Edward's College in Austin, Texas. He became the organist for the college choir and the local boys choir. No, do not think about that too much. Now, he learned how to play the piano and the organ in a remarkable way. He could play at a, like, professional level. He could sight-read difficult music. The way he learned the organ was that he received the gift of lessons for a couple weeks, and he simply just learned it in those couple weeks. I'll quote Moira again, saying, I hope I can make it clear that my father's learning to play the piano in such a short time could be compared to becoming a champion powerlifter after a few weeks of weightlifting or winning karate tournaments after watching a few Bruce Lee movies. His accomplishment was staggering, but he took his ability as lightly as the rest of the things he did very well without studying or training. Around the same time, Walter Breen started having epileptic seizures occasionally while he played piano or organ, which precluded a professional career. Eventually, Breen was readmitted to the hospital for an extended stay. While in the hospital, he started learning about coins. This would become his prevailing interest and profession for the rest of his life. He read every book on coins he could find, started corresponding with prominent numismatists, or coin enthusiasts, right? Walter Breen was transferred to a hospital in Boston. He got released, and he, in his words, says he bummed around, which might literally be true in his case, and he was in and out of VA hospitals for years during this period of his life. In this time, like the late 40s, he was hired by a wealthy coin collector named John J. Ford Jr. This coin collector hired Breen to go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to study coins. 
and mind you, he's at the National Archive studying. He's not working for the National Archive. Would you like to know more about John J. Ford Jr.? Well, Ford was a cryptographer during World War II. I find that important because <laughs> maybe maybe one day I'll achieve my dream of doing a deep dive on the NSA, but just note that that is probably significant. Ford was the partial owner of the New Netherlands Coin Company. Now, that company would, over time and with Walter Brin's help, set a lot of the conventions, grading systems, and classifications for the field of the study of coins, right? They had some controversies. They sold some interesting items. By interesting, I mean, you know, probably in poorer taste or irresponsible, such as they also sold, along with coins, the badges that slaves would wear when they were rented out for day work. They also sold, I think, at least one ashtray owned by Adolf Hitler. Interesting collector's items, I guess you could say. Walter Breen became famous in the coin world through particularly the guides, like the guidebooks that he would write with Ford. Mind you, he's in the DC, Boston sort of area, right? It's at this time that he's corresponding with and met Dr. William Herbert Sheldon, a professor of psychology. Sheldon was a prominent numismatist himself, but he is most famous for being the guy who ran the infamous Ivy League nude posture photograph experiments, which are a truly baffling thing. Now, from what we know, and mind you, maybe there's more to this, but from the years of like the 1940s into the 1970s, all incoming freshmen from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and the Seven Sisters Colleges would be photographed nude, supposedly to check if they had rickets, scoliosis, and lordosis. But think about that. Think about the implications. Now, it was partially a medical screening thing, but Dr. Sheldon supposedly also used the photos to study the body types of the students and try to like map them onto the social hierarchy, like their different socioeconomic backgrounds. He also coined the term ectomorph, mesomorph, and endomorph, which are basically made up terms. They're not, you know, real in a certain sense, I've heard it explained, but they date back to these experiments though experiment is probably not even the right word, right? Now, allow me to read from the Wikipedia page about the nude photographs of every Ivy League student. Quote, What remained of the images were transferred to the Smithsonian and most were destroyed between 1995 and 2001. However, in late 2020, a handful of photos appeared for sale on eBay implying that at least a handful remain in private collections, unquote. Oh, I'm sure that a handful remain in private collections, all right. 
Now let your imagination run wild on that one. I'm sure that there is no weird, complex social control element at play in consolidating class cohesion or something, like consolidating class loyalty when to get into one of the best colleges you have to be photographed nude and they just hold on to that. Don't look behind that curtain. Don't worry about it. And the guy that ran the program was friends with Walter Breen, right? Like what are like what are we talking about here? This is nuts. Anyway, Walter Breen was getting more and more paying gigs and jobs, you know, the gig economy, right? Associated with his work in coins. He was becoming more and more an expert. More and more of his time was spent at the National Archives, as in studying coins there and at the Smithsonian, not that he worked for the, those organizations. He started writing for the monthly journal Numismatist, and he was being groomed, wink, to become the chief editor of that magazine. But, interestingly, the general secretary for the, or the Numismatics organization opposed it for reasons you can probably imagine. In 1951, Walter Breen enrolled in Johns Hopkins University. He enrolled in the German program. He already knew a lot of German because he studied it while hospitalized. He graduated through a unique Johns Hopkins pilot program which would allow you to test out of classes. So he graduated in just a year with a degree in mathematics. While enrolled, Walter Breen had joined the Phi Beta Kappa. Though you can tell that he already had a taste of the sacrilegious because he took the little golden key for the fraternity and he turned it into the zipper for his trousers, which is kind of funny. He also, Walter Breen, participated in a precursor organization to the Mensa group, right? After Walter Breen graduated, he started working for the New Netherlands Coin Company as an auction cataloger. He supplemented his income by writing for coin publications. He would also be paid for what they called cherry picking, which was to just look at a big pile of coins and quickly figure out which, if any, would be worth anything at all at resale. His name started appearing in bigger and bigger font sizes in the various coin catalogs and books. Seriously, like, there's such a long list of professional accomplishments that he racked up in numismatics, it just goes on and on. He was awarded the title Numismatic Scholar of the 20th Century. Like, he might have been possibly the most important t person to ever study coins, at least maybe in the 20th century, or if it's not him, it's like he's in the top five minimum, right? To this day, numismatists have what they call the Sheldon Coin Grading Scale, but initially it was called the Sheldon Breen Coin Grading Scale. Like, his name's attached to the freaking, like, one of the most important, like, you know, ways to quantify a coin, right? Now here's where it gets weird. I'll quote Moira again. 
Between 1953 and 1956, my father was working with Dr. Sheldon in the Constitutional Laboratory at Columbia Medical School. He had become the coordinator of parapsychological research studies of New York's gifted children, also called the Super Kids. Among the Super Kids were my father's longtime friends and colleagues, Jack Sarfati and Robert Bachelot. An unfortunate part of my father's research on the Super Kids was to bring them into the New York science fiction fandom. Given my father's future tendency to use science fiction conventions as a place to locate gifted boys to groom and later molest, I cannot overlook the possibility that my father was sexually exploiting at least some of the Super Kids. My father loved children, especially boys, in much the same way that many of us would love a rare steak." Unquote. Okay, what's that? What's that? Okay, first of all, parapsychological research studies of New York City gifted children? Check. Ran by a prominent Ivy League psychologist? Check. Ran by the same guy who took nude photos of literally every Ivy League freshman for like 30 years? Check. Okay. I think I understand. Now, let's see here. The quote, among the super kids were my father's longtime friends and colleagues, Jack Sarfati and Robert Bachelot. Unquote. Oh, hey, longtime friend of Walter Breen, Jack Sarfati. Got ya. Okay, understood. And then, in Mora's expert opinion, and like I'm not joking, she is unfortunately an expert. She believed that Walter Breen was sexually exploiting at least some of the super kids. Gotcha. Check. Moira documented in her book the process by which Breen would groom children, usually at science fiction conventions. I won't go too much into detail about it. Predatory behaviors don't differ that much. You know, it's a lot of what you would expect. You can look it up if you want. I do note that she notes that he would use hallucinogens to put these boys, mostly, in more susceptible states. Mind you, we're talking the 50s and 60s. That's pretty early to have hallucinogens, just, just noting that. Walter Breen was arrested in 1954 for exposing himself to a young man under a boardwalk in Atlantic City. As a first offender, he got probation. Through the 1950s, his coin career was taking off. He was also becoming more and more involved in the science fiction community. Now, here's where I lost my shit. Walter Breen wrote the index of Charles Hapgood's book, Earth's Shifting Crust. Hapgood's book had a foreword by Albert Einstein. The book postulates that continental drift doesn't exist. Instead, pole shift explained how these things worked better than continental drift. The idea is that there were geologically rapid shifts in the rotational axis of the Earth, and the geographic location of the north and south poles would change. This, in turn, would cause catastrophic floods and earthquakes. To be fair, this book was written in the period before continental drift became more or less 
the scientific consensus. So this isn't like overt crankery like Emmanuel Velikovsky, but it was not grounded in good science either from what I can understand. But, but, are you hearing this? Walter Breen was involved in catastrophism too, albeit of a different strain or variety than Velikovsky. Like, what is the deal here? Why is catastrophism such a vector for these freaks? I attempted to examine that by no means definitively in premium episode 19, if you haven't checked that out yet. And by the way, Hapgood was in fact a weirdo. He postulated separately that there was an ancient kingdom in Antarctica, which sounds a whole lot like some kind of like Hyperborea Nazi shit. He also fell for what is believed to be an elaborate hoax, the Akambaro figures. That's a whole thing. Hapgood also spent 10 years working with a medium associated with Edgar Casey. Weird stuff, right? Very interesting. Now, around 1960, Dr. Sheldon got Walter Breen approved to attend pre-med courses at Columbia University. Dr. Sheldon had to step in because literally no other pre-med like program would accept him. You do have to wonder, did Dr. Sheldon know that he was a pedophile? I think it's an open question, right? Either way, Breen completed the pre-med courses at Columbia University then he got into a graduate program at UC Berkeley to do sociology work. During his time messing around in academia, Walter Breen became fluent in French, German, Italian, and Spanish. He could read Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. He had other party tricks besides met like memorizing the phone book. He could also do complex calculations instantly, so he could do the whole like human calculator thing. He also had an encyclopedic repertoire of dirty limericks. Walter Breen not only believed in UFOs and that he was abducted by them, he also believed in reincarnation. He believed he had literally sat at the feet of Socrates in a past life, and that a different past life he lived in Atlantis, perhaps sitting at the feet of Socrates thing, explained his penchant for boy love. Like, I think he actually wrote that somewhere. To quote his daughter, By the standards of his day, my father was mentally ill, sick enough to be committed involuntarily to a mental hospital. He was released not when he was cured, but when his military benefits ran out. All paranoid schizophrenia involves a fixed system of delusions, beliefs impervious to outside or contradictory information, and his delusions about his victims allowed him to continue committing sex crimes unimpeded by guilt or shame. Now allow me to read a newspaper article from the Times Records of Troy, New York. Walter Breen, 27-year-old Columbia University bachelor, dangles his Phi Beta Kappa Key, importantly these days, and sounds off on genetics. He has organized a lonely genius club for the purpose of producing future generations of geniuses. Breen has 28 male intellectuals in his club. 
they are seeking 28 female geniuses. The ultimate aim is matrimony. Breen says that when two true geniuses marry, they usually produce a little genius. Without this quality in both parents, he avers the chance of getting a genius in the family are about one in a million. Breen himself is said to be one of about 200 persons in the United States with an IQ close to 200. Breen's theory sounds okay, but he is a bachelor and we fear he knows little about the practical side of matrimony. How long would two geniuses last across the breakfast table? When we run across two geniuses at the same time, they are always at each other's throats. The male ego wouldn't fare very well in such an intellectual atmosphere. We suspect it wouldn't be very long before Reno had a genius club of its own. Now it's interesting there, the IQ inflation that always happens, <laughs> where he probably said over 200, or at least they reported on it. But, I mean, I think you see a little bit of the interest in eugenics, right? Certainly some of the preoccupations that Epstein would later have, right? Very interesting stuff. Now, by the time Walter Breen met Marion Zimmer Bradley, she was an established writer who had already been nominated for a Hugo Award. They both independently knew L. Ron Hubbard before Hubbard had founded Scientology. I think even before Dianetics, if I'm not mistaken. They knew him in like its pulp era. They both each knew a bunch of other major science fiction authors, you know, back before they were super famous, I guess you could say. That would include Arthur C. Clarke. Side note, he relocated from Southern California to Sri Lanka for, you know, reasons. They also knew Samuel Delaney, a noted defender and enthusiast of Nambula. They knew Ed Kramer, who was a longtime science fiction and fantasy editor. And I also note the partial owner of Atlanta's Dragon Con, also convicted child molester. And they knew Isaac Asimov. I think they also knew, I think Heinlein, and I want to say maybe Philip K. Dick. They sort of knew everybody, honestly. I do want to note, not to say anything ill of Isaac Asimov, but his son David Asimov was arrested for possession of child porn. Side note to the side note here, you will sometimes hear people say that David Asimov was arrested for having the largest stash of child porn the police had ever seen. Like, I think Mike Cernovich, of all people, phrased it that way. As always, they are still somehow burying the lead a little bit. I quote from an Associated Press article here. The police raided Asimov's four-bedroom home, that's David Asimov, uh, with a search warrant and discovered the largest child-born processing center ever discovered in California. There were thousands of discs, thousands of videos, said a Sonoma County Deputy District Attorney, Gary Medvigi, who personally referred to Asimov's home as a processing center for child pornography. Anything imaginable 
regarding sex between human beings and human beings or human beings and animals was there. Whatever your imagination can conjure up, he had it. It was like walking into a TV studio. Santa Rosa police seized scores of computer disks and approximately 4,000 video cassettes from Asimov's home, and approximately 1,000 of those contained child pornography. The DA said he had evidence to show Asimov distributed child pornography through the internet on at least a few occasions, which would constitute a felony. He said Asimov had 14 video machines arranged for high-speed editing and copying, and that he possessed cases of blank tapes. In addition to the videotapes and computer disks recovered, police reportedly found video cameras, several VCRs, and a costly tabletop scanner to create computer images. He had a whole lot of editing and mass production capabilities. Santa Rosa police officers, Amudio said, we were greeted by thousands of tapes, discs, periodicals, and commercial videos with covers showing child pornography. We spent two days collecting, packaging, packaging and transporting all the items. Now, my note here, it isn't just the largest collection of child porn in the state of California up to that time. It was a processing center, functionally speaking, which is very different and worse in some ways. Like I, I would think most people would agree. Also, I want to note what happened to David Asimov. He didn't receive jail time, he got probation. Do you want to know who made that call? Not exclusively, but who was involved in making that call? U.S. Attorney Prosecutor Robert Mueller. That's right. Interesting, right? Can't help but go down these rabbit holes. As if we don't have enough to talk about. Alright, Moira isn't certain, and Walter Breen's autobiography doesn't seem to say, but... Walter Breen and Marion Zimmer Bradley either met at science fiction conventions around early 1963, or else they met through Mensa. They were both among the first Mensa members in the entire country. I've seen people speculate that Walter Breen might have been the first Mensa member in the country. If not, he was up there, right? Here are their respective Mensa register entries. And I love this. It's like, it's such nerd shit. I can't, I can't deal with it. Okay. Marion Zimmer Bradley, Rochester, Texas. Deist, but not church member. Novelist, student. Languages, education. Fantasy Amateur Press Association. Circus Fans of America. Fellowship of the Ring. IPSO, Amateur Press Society. The Literature of Homosexuality and Variants. Spanish language, opera, fantasy and science fiction fandom, Tolkien fandom, circuses, amateur publishing, education of gifted children, legal reform of laws relating to censorship, occultism of the magical, Kabbalistic school. Lowbrow, highbrow, pulp novelist, desiring to write quality work someday, frustrated musician, member 182. That, of course, Marion Zimmer Bradley. Here's for Walter Breen. Mr. Walter Breen, 2404 Grove Street, Berkeley, California, USA, unaffiliated, 
born in Texas, 1930, graduate student, sociology, University of California, writer, numismatist, ABM president, Foundation for the Gifted Child, Inc., Phi Beta Kappa, AAAS, Synesthists, Phalanx, Baltimore, International Publishers Speculative Organization, Golden Gate Futurians, Phanoclasts, Elves, Gnomes, and Little Men's Science Fiction, Chowder and Marching Society, Fellowship of the Ring, Numerous Science Fiction Clubs and Amateur Press Associations, Classical Literature, Other Fine Arts, Sciences, especially relating to human behavior, sexology, science fiction, literature, numismatics, especially U.S., comparative religion, mathematics, especially number theory, aspects of medicine, psychiatry, gifted children, constitutional psychology, handwriting analysis, semantics, the best world, etc. Busy bohemian with bushy barbarian beard will try almost anything once, Member 190. Like I said, a bunch of nerd shit. Moira Grayland said, I suppose that once my mother and father had found each other in Mensa, neither of them needed it anymore. And they were largely less active in Mensa once they did find each other. Moira said, for better or worse, Bradley and Breen were, in fact, deeply in love. They would talk for hours and hours about absolutely everything. That they would each act as each other's proofreader and occasional editor. And that they were best friends. Around their engagement, that's when the brain doggle happened. The brain doggle, or the brain boondoggle, that refers to a infamous fanzine article entitled The Great Brain Boondoggle or All Berkeley is Plunged into War, circa 1963, written by Bill Donahoe. The article asserts that Walter Breen had sexually abused at least 10 children. They were not rumors, but credible, documented reports with many witnesses. The article asserted that among his victims included a 3-year-old girl, a 7-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy, a 13-year-old boy, and several others. I'm not including the names, but they are included in the article. To quote the article, People hoped that his impending marriage to Marion Zimmer Bradley would change him. Maybe she'll reform him. He may have had mistresses before, but he's never fully committed to a woman. Besides, maybe she'll keep him so busy he won't have time for other outlets. Most of us think this is unrealistic. Change only comes when it is wanted, and Walter is extremely satisfied with himself as he is. The other position is, it'll only be a short time before she comes to her senses. She obviously knows about Walter and accepts him, but let's see what happens to tolerance in theory when he starts making passes at her 12-year-old son. Many people think Walter is dangerous to children. He has stated himself that he has had sexual relations with children of both sexes and multiple ages. Others are not sure if Walter is actually hurting the kids. Also, while Walter can evidently be most tender and loving when he wants to, he has behaved brutally to some of his lovers after he is tired of them. He has stated that he has had sex with young teenage girls without using contraceptives. So, Walter is dangerous to children. Everyone should have a certain amount of social responsibility, 
and I would be a coward if I did not at least try to do something about the danger Walter represents. Some people want to have Walter committed. I want to surgically separate Walter from fandom." Unquote. It sort of reminds me of Andrea Dworkin talking about Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg, referring to the Supreme Court's decision to ban child pornography, said, The right wants to put me in jail. And Andrea Dworkin responded to him saying, Yes, they're very sentimental. I would kill you. And then later, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg would point to Dworkin and shout, She wants to put me in jail. And Andrea Dworkin said, No, Allen, you still don't get it. The right wants to put you in jail, I want you dead. So the point is this is the big dust up. This is, you know, when from this point on, unless you knew Walter Breen personally, there was like he was known to be a pedophile. Right? So Marion Zimmer Bradley chose to stand by her man. She chose to defend him, and her vehemence as both his wife and as an established author carried a lot of weight. So Breen was labeled a pedophile. He was not entirely driven out of the science fiction community, not entirely, and he would continue to operate as a predator. It's time to get even darker. We have to talk about Walter Breen's grand vision. 
one way to characterize it was this idea to sexualize all human relationships and he did mean all human relationships i'll quote from moira here my father believed that the best most intimate way to express love to children and to everyone was to have sex with them in his mind sex was love and any effort to separate love and sex was a consequence of limited thinking. Since love is best expressed by sex, everyone should have sex with all people all of the time. He believed that the practice of unlimited sex would bring about a utopia that would end all of the ills of human society. Unquote. According to Breen, all sexual limitations came from Christian indoctrination and that guilt and shame about sex was the worst possible fate. Therefore, unlimited sex would end that guilt and shame. Breen also believed that clothing was oppressive, and he was nude as often as possible, mostly at home. Walter Breen also believed that Jesus was a gay pedophile who was involved with a teenage John the Beloved. He also believed homosexuality was the natural state of man, and that heterosexuality was literally not real. Again, to quote Moira here, my father felt that enough exposure to his logic, early sex, and, quote, the right hallucinogens would, quote, raise the consciousness of the poor unfortunates who did not agree with him. He thought it was vital to rid people of their sexual hang-ups as young as possible, since it was much easier to influence the thinking of a child than an adult. My father believed that early sexual experience would create gay children by helping them get in touch with their natural homosexuality. He was aware that people imprint on their earliest sexual experiences, and he took advantage of this. He often said that boys have to have experience with a man before they were old enough to be, quote, ruined by sexual attraction to a girl. He felt that having sex with boys early would help them embrace their natural homosexuality and give them strength to resist the societal pressure to become straight. He did not acknowledge any sexual taboo as being legitimate. He thought there was no purpose whatsoever to having an incest taboo and considered it a way to limit love between parents and children. At times, he expressed the belief that the government was spying on him and intended to destroy him because he alone had the secret to universal love, and that he knew that this would result in freedom for mankind, a freedom that he felt certain would be opposed by the government. He felt it was love itself the cops and the government was trying to shut down, as though love was the same thing as violating children." Unquote. Here's a passage about Walter Breen, written by Donald Mader from his article Before Stonewall. By the way, Mater is one of the founders of Paideka, a journal of pedophilia. Quote, speaking of Breen, quote, he would then go to the spare bedroom to return with his stash and rolling papers. If it was at all a warm night without a stitch of clothes on, he would subsequently settle in on the couch and hold forth about another six hours or so on his research on Greek love. He was constantly revising the book for a proposed second edition, or on other things such as exploration of his former lives, or the occasion when he had to defend his family and friends by making sigils of power with his fingers 
and hurling flaming pentacles at Lovecraftian monsters, which had attacked them while they were ensconced in a hot tub, or the time that he had been overcome by a mystic trance on a visit to Glastonbury and was granted a vision of purple flames towering above the ruins." Unquote. So, what do you think those sigils of power were about? Like, hand signs, sigils of power? And what about these Lovecraftian monsters? And what about his vision of purple flames? It sort of reminds me of the... The purple aspect reminds me of the vision that Nisho Inoue received. Very weird. Like, no, seriously, what are sigils of power that you make with your fingers? In 1964, Walter Breen published a book, Creek Love, under a pseudonym, J.Z. Eglinton, who was dedicated, quote, to my beloved wife. Bradley had proofread it for him. Additionally, in 1965, Bradley published an article, Feminine Equivalents of Greek Love in Modern Fiction. She published it in Walter Breen's short-lived International Journal of Greek Love. Greek Love was an academic treatise on the history of homosexuality and pederasty. It strongly criticized what he called the adultification of homosexuality. He argued that homosexuality historically was much more akin to pederasty. It argued that these types of relationships were healthy, and it framed the argument around rights for children. Additionally, Bradley said that she had done some editorial work on Greek love, but, quote, I found out afterward that everything I had done had been thrown out by the publisher, Robert Bachelow. Unquote. Take note here. About, like, literally an hour ago, probably, I mentioned Robert Bachelow. Who was he again, if you will recall? Robert Bachelow was one of the super kids, along with Jack Sarfati. Bachelow had, you know, growing up, he entered the field of numismatics. He was involved in the Oliver Layton Press, which published Greek Love. Now tell me, do you think that Walter Breen, who literally tried to fuck any child he could, did not molest Robert Bachelow, who would continue to have a career working closely with Walter Breen on both his coin collecting and his fucking pedophile shit? Are you trying to tell me that he didn't molest Bachelow ever? Fuck you, Jack Sarfati. There's no way that a super kid would have published that book unless he was diddled by Walter Breen. I'm sorry, there's just too many ties. Now, by the way, I'm not a coin guy. It's a foreign world to me. I'm not really a collector guy. If I were a collector, it would be rare books. I don't really have the collector mindset, right? Nevertheless, for the purposes of this, I've spent time trying to figure out Robert Bachelow's contribution to the world of numismatics, and it's very interesting, actually. Bachelow, among other things that he did, he convinced an investor to acquire these Confederate coin molds, particularly for the Confederate cent. My understanding is that he got a minting company 
to create, eventually, 30,000 new Confederate coins. I'll refrain from speculating about why the Confederacy, you know. Anyway, here's an article about these Confederate scents. Quote, they were relentlessly advertised with double truck, which is to say double-facing pages, in the numismatics press, especially Coin World. All Bachelot ads were bold and flashy, featuring borders of Confederate flags, garish typefaces presenting a barrage of breathless claims about the great opportunities of this second restrike of the Confederate scent, offered to trusting readers. Intense controversy erupted over these claims. Just what was a second restrike? What were copy dies, and why should anything struck from them have any value at all? And besides, who was this Robert Bachelow? Unquote. Now the article also notes, quote, irregular finances, and that Bachelow would frequently not pay his advertising bills. So we're talking about kind of a con man here, actually. And apparently bigger, more prominent, more reputable figures in numismatics objected to Bachelot's mostly scammy confederate sense scheme, and they also objected to Bachelot's article, 1,000 Ways to Evade the Draft. Now, I also found this, like, unironically pretty funny. Robert Bachelot minted a coin which said, Catholic States of America in the Pope we hope, and it had a big picture of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> and apparently no one would coin it, so it had to be coined in England. Certainly in poor taste, but it is funny. Now, Bachelot got the Secret Service on his ass in 1962. If I understand the story correctly, he showed up with a coin and or coin molds such that he, like, he would have had to have broken into a scrapyard at a federal mint to obtain. My understanding is that the Secret Service could prove this. It's also my understanding that you do not want the Secret Service coming after you. I mean, that's true for any law enforcement, but I mean, like, specifically the Secret Service. It's not clear to me, but I think Bachelot was getting more and more into the realm of renting rare coins that were valuable in order to scam collectors. Let me re-say that. He was entering the territory of doing like forgery, but forging rare coins, which is to say making new coins look like old coins, which is to say scamming people, right? Now, here's another open question. To what extent were Walter Breen and Robert Bachelot working together to scam people? I think that's a fair question. Bachelot published Greek Love with Walter Breen. They both worked in coins. I mean, realistically, I think Breen probably, you know, punked out Bachelot when he was a kid, as a super kid. Like... Were they scamming together, too? What's interesting is that Walter Breen came out of this whole thing with his coin expertise and reputation relatively intact. But 
either way, around 1962 or 1963, Robert Bachelot was kicked out of the American Numismatic Association. Again, I will quote from the article. It was reported that Bachelot had died in a fire, a raging fire that swept through the Corona de Aragon Hotel in Saragossa, Spain, on July 12, 1979. The fire claimed the lives of 80 guests, but no cause for this conflagration was ever published. Among conspiracy theorists, it was whispered that Bachelot faked his own death to avoid legal problems stemming from his long association with Walter Breen and his non-numismatic interests. Such a suggestion, of course, cannot be proven." Unquote. Now this is remarkable, like a super kid who was doing coin scams, who knew Walter Breen from both the super kid era and both of them working in numismatics, ends up dying in a fire. Right? And this is the publisher of Greek Love, too. Like, what is going on? And I find it very, very interesting. He's in Spain, right? And that's where he either dies or fakes his death. Spain, <laughs> of course, during the Franco regime, Spain, which has unfortunately never been particularly, like, inhospitable to international pedophiles. I think I could, I think that's fair to say. And I, I really like that euphemism, non-numismatic interests. Like, this, this is crazy stuff. I couldn't find any conspiracy theorists talking about this. I would love if somebody knew, like, off the top of their head, other people writing about this. Because this is some crazy stuff. And I, I was able to find a lot of stuff other than Moira's book, but, like, not from anything approaching the angle that I'm trying to take with this stuff, you know? I would love to know who else was talking about this guy, both Breen and Robert Bachelot. Like, what is going on? Now, the article I cited was entitled Robert Bachelot. It was written by David T. Alexander in the publication Coin Week. So, Moira explained that her brother Patrick was named after a survivor from the Donner Party. Moira herself was named after the evil queen in the famous Irish myth, The Cattle Raid of Ulster. They definitely had a black humor approach to naming children. Moira said that her father had a plan to breed high IQ children, and that he talked about it like it was an experiment. However, once born, neither parent had a particular interest in running the house or taking care of their kids. Each of the children would attest to roaches, ants, irregular meals, and just a generally neglectful, unsafe, and downright dangerous household, basically. Like, we're talking like not changing a child's diaper for days type of thing. I don't know if you've ever seen The Simpsons, you ever hear of that show, but there's one really short bit that they do where Homer Simpson just 
looks through the mail and just starts throwing bills away. Well, Walter Breen would actually do that. And that sounds really funny, except they actually lost one of their houses that way. <laughs> um, Moira said that Walter Breen never bought groceries, never cooked, did absolutely no chores ever. He would, if forced, like he would sometimes starve, he would never cook, you know, would eat things from the can. I guess this was pre-microwave dinner for the most part. And that he would just wallow in filth, like, like an actual crazy person, which he was. In 1966, Walter Breen got a master's degree from UC Berkeley, but apparently he failed his PhD oral examination. It is not clear why he failed, but Moira suspects that it was because he might have tried to use some or all of the work that he had been working on, which is to say Greek love. I mean, it was the major work of his life other than coins for that period, so it is quite likely. Now, Marion Zimmer Bradley said that Walter Breen suffered a nervous breakdown because of this failure. In the same year, 1966, Marion Zimmer Bradley, along with Diana Paxson, founded the Society for Creative Anachronism. Since Marion Zimmer Bradley has, to some extent, fallen from grace, I think Diana Paxson is sort of like the go-to founder. Like, there's been some, I wouldn't say retconning, but like I perceive that like they sort of put her out there more than Marion Zimmer Bradley due to the allegations that we'll get to in a second. And for that reason, you know, like if you pull up the Wikipedia page for the Society of Creative Anachronism, you'll see a picture of Diana Paxson, as well as a bunch of other, you know, nerds, basically. And that's cool and all. She seems like a less bad person than Marion Zimmer Bradley, I guess. But I will read this passage from Mara's book. And I can barely understand what it means, but I'll read it to you and you can draw your own conclusions. Quote, Later, Diana married my mother's adoptive brother, Don, in what was intended to be a platonic group marriage with my mother's youngest brother, Paul Edwin Zimmer, and my aunt, Tracy. Before they got married, Paul got Diana pregnant with her firstborn son, my cousin Ian. Nobody blinked an eye or would admit to having the slightest difficulty with the situation, even though it did create problems. Unquote. So, call me crazy, it sounds a little bit like what we got is a classic polycule situation. Although maybe a little bit more chaotic than normal. Either way, I do not think that it is unlikely that Diana Paxson also knew about what was going on. And that, that probably, you know factored into the institutional culture of the SEA, I guess you could say. But I'm not trying to write off the Society for Creative Anachronism altogether, right? I'm not a Ren Fair guy, I'm sorry. I'm not into this shit. 
but I'm not trying to like act like I'm way cooler. Well, no, I, I literally am cooler than this, but like, that's not the point. The point is not that this is uncool shit. <laughs> it's that it's actually bad. But it's a, it's a mixed thing because Moira actually says that for her and her siblings, that the Society for Creative Anachronism was almost entirely a positive influence on her life. It was an escape for her, in many ways an escape from her own family. That said, she acknowledged, quote, it is also a comfortable place for pedophiles to hide and where they can find access to vulnerable children for much the same reasons as we saw in science fiction's fandom, Breendoggle. Misfits are expected to be nice to other misfits, to be accepting of their idiosyncrasies, and to give them the benefit of the doubt for even the most bizarre behavior. That being said, I am hopeful that some amount of house cleaning has taken place in the SCA since my experience with it, and that there is more safety now for children than there was then." Unquote. I will note, in 2012, mind you, the SCA agreed to pay $1.3 million to settle a lawsuit on behalf of 11 victims of child sexual abuse. I will say that what Moira said, misfits are expected to be nice to other misfits, and that misfit communities can sort of like cause people to be too accepting of certain idiosyncrasies that can sometimes be very bizarre red flag behavior. You know what I'm saying? I think that we've talked about a lot of these different communities. Heads up here, this will probably be some of the roughest content that we talk about. Skip ahead a couple minutes if you don't want to hear it. I will not be very graphic, however. Walter Breen had a collection of dirty limericks, aphorisms, and quasi-blasphemous sayings that he would collect. He called it his masterpiece, The Cynic's Dictionary which was a play on the Devil's Dictionary, right? Apparently it was really long, like it ran for several thousand pages, and it had gems such as the following, quote, straight, adjective, narrow, more like the cage than the bird, more like the wall than the vine or the child that climbs it, more like the nightstick than the head it smashes, unquote. Or, quote, marriage, noun, for the man, a wife sentence for the woman, a new name and address. Unquote. Or, probably the darkest one of all would be, quote, incest is nicest spelled sideways. Unquote. I'll quote from Moira again. Quote, Walter was a big fan of all sex, and I mean all sex. He simply could not see sex as damaging, frightening, or harmful to anyone of any age, and he thought that fear of sex or prudishness was a problem to be overcome instead of a reaction to a potential danger. He seemed to believe that one episode of sex would lead to more and more sex, and that everyone's willingness to have sex would increase, and soon everyone would be having sex with everyone. His grand vision of the world. He believed that the more sex everyone had, the better the world would be, no matter the consequences. 
Along the same lines, Walter Breen smoked weed constantly and loved hallucinogens. He particularly loved LSD, MDMA, and mushrooms. He kind of hated other drugs, however. Like, he detested, I think, amphetamines, heroin, even coffee and alcohol. Patrick, one of Moira's siblings, recalls having been given LSD multiple times in a medical facility as a kid, and consequently he developed synesthesia, which included more or less permanent hallucinations. Like, I think she might have said that for him it's almost like he permanently sees, like, fish or pineapples floating around or something. Moira did not have these experiences, but she does suspect that at different times in her childhood she had been surreptitiously drugged. Walter Breen was disappointed that his own children did not want to have sex with him. Moira stated that Walter Breen molested and raped her. She also stated that Marion Zimmer Bradley did as well. She also says that she was molested by a man from the pagan community, a man informally called the pagan pope, Isaac Bonewitz. Note, if you were to go to the Wikipedia page for Isaac Bonewitz, you'll find the picture of a creepy-ass looking dude who is from Michigan, a major figure in the neo-paganism movement. <laughs> Get this, uh, he... I think founded the Aquarian Anti-Defamation League, you know, studied at UC Berkeley, was involved with the Church of Satan, but instead went more into the pagan route. He was down with all the Gardnerian Wicca. What you will note, however, is a conspicuous lack of allegations against him, which as we all know is not proof, of course, that he was innocent. <clears throat> I do want to note as well, way back in February 26, 2021, around when I made my other thread, I did a long thread. I call it, personally, like just my informal name for it, the North Fox Island thread, where I talk about a different pedophile network that was ran out of the islands in, you know, the Great Lakes, and specifically around Michigan. And one of the main guys, not the rich guy, but one of the lower tier guys was a gym teacher in Michigan who was particularly into Wicca. Interesting, right? Another Michigan Wiccan. I'm sorry, the Wiccan community is not that big. I feel like they figure a little too prominently in the ranks of all the many pedophiles out there. Out of proportion to their membership, that's just my two cents. Anyway, so getting back to Mora and her experiences. She asserts that like there was physical abuse, there was sexual abuse, there was emotional abuse, there was neglect. She cites that her parents would allow her to travel, not just allow, but sometimes force her to travel through the BART transit system in San Francisco at the age of eight, unaccompanied, 
where she would frequently be harassed by like just random people on the transit system because she's just a, like an eight-year-old girl all alone. And, you know, Marion Zimmer Bradley would tell her daughter that this was because she carried herself like a victim. So you get a little bit of the classic victim blaming as well, right? So I think that's the worst of the, uh, the incest shit. But let's switch back into coins to, you know, calm down a little bit. Let's talk about how Walter Breen was hired as vice president of First Coin Investors, Inc., or FCI. This occurred around 1975, and he was hired as VP by the CEO, Stanley Apfelbaum. Another side note here, Apfelbaum was a New York attorney back when it was pretty hard to pass the bar exam. He then moved into, you know, he started First Coin Investors, Inc., which was very interesting because they did telemarketing, but for coins. Now, as with telemarketing anything, telemarketing coins pretty much involved mass sales to unsophisticated and ignorant coin collectors. You know, external observers at the time particularly perceived FCI as exploiting Walter Breen's quasi-autistic coin genius because they mostly sold worthless coins to dupes. However, over time, I think some people in the coin community started to understand that Walter Breen was actually in on these scams to a certain extent. Certainly in on, like, the the overall scam, right? Apfelbaum and Breen together founded the Institute of Numismatic and Philatelic Studies. Philatelic referring to stamps, right? They did that at New York's Adelphi University in 1978. Walter Breen would teach there, and he was known for dressing in flip-flops, tie-dye shirts, and dirty clothes. It is in some ways super funny that, like, the coin genius was like this disgusting, <laughs> evil hippie, basically. Over time, the coin community <laughs> appeared to begin to realize that the Institute was I wouldn't say it was a front, but like it was, it existed among other things to register their own FCI telemarketers as qualified numismatists. They also, the FCI in general, started selling membership to a thing called the Walter Breen Inner Circle, which would cause great embarrassment to members of the Walter Breen Inner Circle years later. What's really curious, though, is that as Apfelbaum ran this scammy telemarketing company, he started to become increasingly paranoid. I have a quote here from a different Coin World article, quoting an employee saying, I didn't mind the first four or five, but the 23rd polygraph bothered me. There's another interesting story. Apparently, Walter Breen's deteriorating mental state led lower-level FCI employees to plan to phase out marketing using Walter Breen's name. Because he was like, 
starting to mess up on, you know, how he ranked certain coins. He was just cracking up. He, like, couldn't perform, right? And so they were like, okay, well, we need to, like, transition away from putting his name on everything we sell. However, Apfelbaum and his lawyers shouted, I own Breen, and I'm going to merchandise him to the hilt. You will restore his name to Coin World, or else. Interesting side note to the side note here. These people, FCI and a few other companies, they were essentially the first wave of gold telemarketers and gurus when investing in gold became legal in the 1970s. Like, this is essentially the same group of people. Apfelbaum in particular sold modern Israeli coins, and he also sold Roman Judaic coins. The trick was that they would take extremely common copper coins from the Hasmonean kings. Like, unsurprisingly, there's like a ton of Roman currency that still exists, and they would sell them as like widow's mites, like from the New Testament story, or like, you know, come up with some other biblical thing, and then sell them for much more than they were really worth, which is almost nothing. So, different types of scams, and gold, gold scams, gold telemarketing, coin telemarketing, just scammy telemarketing in general, all of this extremely interesting to me. For whatever reason, I think we can assume, because it's a scam, but like, for whatever reason, the FCI started massively overgrading US coins specifically the ones they held. Presumably, it would be to scam money out of people. There are many stories of clueless doctors in particular who dabbled in coin collecting. It was not super uncommon to find a doctor who had sunk $800,000 into a collection of FCA coins, and then to find out at the end of the day that they would only be able to resell their collection for like $300,000. I know, like, cry me a river, right? Like, doctors getting scammed. Like, I don't technically care about that, but, like, this is, like, some crazy stuff still. Like, this is, like, a kind of a criminal enterprise, right? Now, the FCI eventually filed for bankruptcy in 1989. But, before that point, they were primarily based in Florida and Minnesota, which is where... Like, they, those two states have some of the most lenient laws for telemarketing. So you see a lot of the other types of telemarketing scams run out of those states. Very interesting, right? Now, along the same lines, Apfelbaum was eventually kicked out of the Association for Numismatics, or the ANA, I forget what the acronym stands for. But that's the trajectory of FCI. Right. They died, they, you know, went bankrupt in 1989. But did you notice Apfelbaum's increasing paranoia? I'm sure he was paranoid because of all the scams. But I can't help but think that he would have also been paranoid because his key star, his big name, was an out-and-out -and, -out and unrepentant prolific pedophile. To that end, do you think that Apfelbaum and first coin investors knew? I'm being facetious, of course.
Of course they did. In fact, there are stories, well-sourced stories, that FCI would basically monitor Walter Breen, especially at conventions, to prevent him from abusing children, as doing this at conventions was his MO, right? Now, outside numismatics, Walter Breen gave a lecture at Princeton University in 1975. Would you like to know what he lectured about? Tolkien and the Occult Revival. <laughs> Breen also gave a seminar at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. This seminar was sponsored by Jack Sarfati. This seminar was entitled, Some Effects of Music on Consciousness, Overview and Preliminary Explorations. Moira tells us another weird thing about her upbringing. When I was 11, I landed my first major theatrical role. I played Alice in Wonderland at the fair. I prepared exhaustively for the audition and for the part, reading all of Alice in Wonderland many times and discussing the annotated Alice book at length with my father. He loved the work of Lewis Carroll, and he and I spent a lot of time further annotating the book. She says, Of course I realized many years later that my father had a bit too much in common with Lewis Carroll. This was not a shared interest based on wonderful literary devices and madcap humor. Lewis Carroll loved photographing little naked girls. Now let's switch gears a little bit. By 1979, the Walter Breen, Marion Zimmer Bradley power couple brought a permanent third into their marriage. Elizabeth Waters, also known as Lisa. Guess where she was from? Providence, Rhode Island. Either way, this wasn't really like a menage a trois situation. Breen had basically lost all sexual interest in Bradley, partially due to her pregnancies, partially because he was a pedophile. So Lisa and Marion Zimmer Bradley were a couple, with Walter Breen and Marion Zimmer Bradley remaining best friends who lived together. And Bradley was, apart from being a predator herself, an extreme enabler of Walter Breen. Lisa enabled them both. And this is where we get into perhaps the strangest part of the story. Walter Breen befriended three priests. Father Jim Dennis, Reverend Richard Kilstadius, and Archbishop Michael Eichen. These guys were wandering bishops. Now, I've brought up wandering bishops several times, right? David Ferry, the airline pilot, anti-Castro gunrunner, amateur cancer researcher, sufferer of alopecia, and associate of Carlos Marcello, as well as the mentor and possible abuser of Lee Harvey Oswald in the Civil Air Patrol, right? Played by Joe Pesci in the JFK movie. Well, he was a wandering bishop in the American Orthodox Catholic Church. Don't get it twisted. One of the biggest <laughs> issues with my thread, the thread I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, was a lot of people misunderstood and acted like I was talking about any of the Orthodox churches that, you know, have actual memberships, when in fact we're talking about Orthodox churches that do not functionally have a membership. 
the American Orthodox Catholic Church had almost no parishioners, right? But it did have a very interesting history. The American Orthodox Catholic Church, AOCC, was a spin-off from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Now, both the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church, I think they each had two versions. There would be the version in the country, Russia, or, you know, the socialist state of Ukraine. And then there would be the uh, entity abroad that would... And so, like, frequently there would be, like, two different organizations claiming to be the proper, like, Russian Orthodox Church or Russian U Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Complicated, you know, Cold War situation. But the American Orthodox Catholic Church was explicitly a spin-off from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that was oppositional to the USSR. The AOCC was started by a man named Walter Profeta, who was militantly anti-communist. And he was tight with the Wackel Group, which is the World Anti-Communist League. And he was, Profeta was pretty big in the Captive Nations Movement, which sort of was an aspect of Wackel. For people who don't know that much about Wackel, it was sort of like this network of like different intelligence communities, different dissident groups that were oppositional to communism. The captive nations refers to like, you know, different countries that were like supposedly under the control of the Soviets things of this nature. Ukraine in particular was a big one, right? So Walter Profeta was, basically he was Ukrainian and he was in the West. So he was a big propaganda tool. He talked a lot about the Kadian Forest Massacre, for example. He would go on TV and talk about the plight of Ukrainians. We're talking about the kind of people that were spreading the whole Holodomor thing, right? Now, Profeta, for whatever reason, possibly because of his, well, we can only speculate, but he got sidelined in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, like, wasn't really pushed into higher leadership. So he left and he started the aforementioned American Orthodox Catholic Church. Like I've said, there wasn't really a real membership they had a very large number of bishops. Coincidentally, Peter Lavenda, the author, was in this circle. He knew some of these people, so I will quote him here. The Episcopi Vagantes, or wandering bishops, were men who had either invented their own church and named themselves as its bishops, or who more often joined churches already in existence and for a fee or some service, were consecrated as bishops by other bishops. There is a certain degree of sadness in contemplating the type of individual who would lust so mightily for the bishop's robes, but might be otherwise incapable or unqualified to even be an altar boy, much less a priest, much less a bishop. Some of these men gave themselves outlandish titles such as patriarch or archbishop, some were janitors, convicted criminals, or the borderline insane, 
Still others were intelligence agents. Unquote. So, Propheta, to start his church, he needed a legitimate line of consecration. The tradition, I think, would be like three different bishops who, you know, ordain or consecrate a new bishop. We're talking about a line of secession, like an apostolic line. Like, your priesthood has to be from someone who had it before, right? Like a line of authority. This is the kind of thing that, like, most Protestant Christians don't worry about too much, right? But Catholics, Orthodox, Mormons, certain other groups are really preoccupied with the priesthood and this whole idea of, like, authority, right? Now, theoretically, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, they can trace their priesthood back to St. Peter, and therefore Jesus Christ, right? And therein lies the authority to act, to do different rituals, you know, different... You know, that's where they get their spiritual power from, supposedly. So, where did Propheta get this consecration? Well, he got it from the Societas Rosicruciana in America, which is acronymized as SRIA. Now, this group was a spin-off of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, the British Lodge. So we're talking about a Rosicrucian society in America that consecrated Walter Profeta. The American group, you know, was connected to the British group. The British Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, you know, the Latinization, of England, the British SRIA provided many of the people, or like, they were sort of like the groundwork, or the, the gumbo, the cultic milieu, if you will, for the Golden Dawn. The Golden Dawn, of course, was where Aleister Crowley was involved, you know, with the Golden Dawn, and he, of course, split off and, you know, set up his OTO, you know, the whole the whole satanic thing, right? Now, it's worth noting, it's very relevant, that most Orthodox churches, as in the ones with real followers, like the Greek Orthodox, the, you know, Russian Orthodox, the, you know, what have you, they tend to state, whenever asked, that the SRIA, whether British or American, is a satanic organization. Now, the question of priesthood lines, this whole authority thing, it goes back a long way. It's a very complicated question. But, needless to say, Propheta's organization became very popular with a lot of criminal elements, a lot of unsavory types, in the words of Peter Lavenda. Now, Propheta ordained Carl J. Stanley. Stanley ordained David Ferry. The successor to Stanley was Bishop Michael Eichen. Eichen headed the Moorish Orthodox Diocese of Ongshat in Montclair, New Jersey. Eichen had been ordained a bishop by George A. Hyde, who was the first openly gay bishop, 
He was famous for running a homosexual parish in a gay bar in Atlanta, Georgia, around like the late 40s, early 1950s. Michael Eitken then found his way to the Moorish Diocese, which was a spin-off of the Moorish Temple. The Moorish Temple was famous for being the breeding ground, the, the gumbo, the cultic milieu for the Nation of Islam, much of the black Israelites. I think some of the five percenters also trace back to the Moorish Temple, as well as Hakim Bey. The quasi-Islamic, quasi-anarchist who coined the term temporary autonomous zones, he also wrote in favor of pederasty. Hakim Bey is like a really, really interesting guy. So, this is insane. Crowley, if we'll, if we'll recall, Crowley's OTO, his spin-off from the Golden Dawn, they of course run a parallel organization called the Gnostic Catholic Church. They carry out Gnostic masses that basically, you know, associated with all of their OTO and OTO-related orgs. There are subterranean yet very real links between the Golden Dawn, the Societas Rosicruciana, the OTO, the Moorish Temple, everyone, you know, involved in offshoots of the Moorish Temple, like the Nation of Islam, all of these fake Orthodox churches, and their wandering bishops. Like, what are we to make of this? There are even ties to the Theosophical Society with Madame Blavatsky. And, you know, at least through one of these, there is a tie to the JFK assassination. If you can believe it, the American Orthodox Catholic Church also has ties to the Sovereign Citizen Movement and the Sovereign Order of St. John, like, Recluse of the Farm has talked quite a bit about these, you know, things, particularly the far-right sovereign citizen angle. Like I mentioned, if you've seen the movie JFK, you know, Kevin Costner, he plays Jim Garrison, the New Orleans DA investigating Clay Shaw, the Tommy Lee Jones character. He's also investigating David Barry, David Ferry, played by Joe Pesci. Now, that same Jim Garrison, in real life, he had a witness who stated that David Ferry conducted black masses at his apartment. Which sounded patently absurd to everyone, until they realized that David Ferry was involved in this, like, weird, wandering bishop milieu. And found out that he was, in fact, an ordained priest. And that he did have a huge interest in this type of thing. Oh, and, you know, the apartment where he was carrying out these black masses, supposedly? It was 3330 Louisiana Avenue Parkway in New Orleans. It's all too much, man. To quote from that witness describing David Ferry's black masses, quote, The chalice featured animal blood. The wafer consisted of some kind of raw flesh instead of cake or bread. He wore a little black toga, solid black. He wore nothing underneath. He called it the American Eastern Catholic Orthodox Church. After all the ritual, shouted rituals, it ends up, and it's a brutal thing, a sadistic quality to it. Bloodletting, chicken killing, stuff like that. Unquote. So Lavenda notes that 
it sounds like David Ferry might have been bringing in elements of like voodoo or Santeria. Which, if he were, that would have put him at the cutting edge of Western magic traditions that were just starting to explore voodoo and Santeria. Things were headed in that direction, but it wasn't the norm yet. Now, any normal person, like myself included, hears all this shit and goes like, Okay, why? What is the purpose? Why would you want to be a bishop of a church that doesn't exist? What does this get you? You know? Like, is this just like a credential mill type of thing? Because it was connected to that, you know? There was some element of like, also trading and, you know, fake degrees and things like that. And, confoundingly, again, Lavenda might have one of the better explanations. And I quote, Why would occultists and magicians hunger after apostolic secession? Miters, cassocks, crociers, and panegias. The answer is simple and sinister. The black mass which Ferry was accused of performing is a ritual that mocks those of the Catholic Church. Essentially, it is an attempt at organized blasphemy, an attack of rebellion, political as well as theological. It is designed to attract demonic influences, evil spirits, and the souls of the angry dead. Yet this ritual carries very little weight if performed by a layperson. It is quite powerful, however, if performed by an ordained priest. A valid ordination is one of the most singular sources of spiritual strength in the West. It is a line of ritual, faith and trust, that extends back in time, 2,000 years, to those who believe in the power of the laying on of hands. It is potent magic indeed. Alistair Crowley, dubbed by the myopic British tabloids as the wickedest man in the world, could not perform a black mass no matter how much he may have liked to, and there is no evidence that he ever wanted to. He was not an ordained priest. Further, many rituals of ceremonial magic prescribe the use of relics and other articles that could only be sourced from the church, thus giving rise to a great deal of theft and subterfuge. A priest, however, has immediate access to all of this and possesses the power to create more holy water, holy oil, a consecrated host, etc. Inasmuch as many grimoires, cookbooks of ritual magic, insist on invoking God, Jesus, Mary, the saints, etc., the use of genuinely blessed religious artifacts, of course, give the ritual that much more authority. Thus, David Ferry, should his line of apostolic secession prove valid, could, quote, legitimately perform a black mass, whereas Crowley, from all available evidence, would not have been able to do so. This should not be viewed as the sole object, sole objective, however. Many occultists value the line of secession as a source of spiritual power whether or not they consider themselves Christian. Power is power, wherever it is found and by whatever means it can be obtained. A validly ordained priest has the power to perform most of the sacraments and the validly consecrated bishop has the power to perform all of the sacraments, including ordaining more priests and consecrating more bishops, thus ensuring a line of power for his cult equal to that of the Catholic Church. The allure is irresistible. 
The sad thing is there is actually nothing there to compete for since the only ones paying any attention are usually other wandering bishops like themselves. They did nothing special to deserve the consecrations. No service to humanity, no saintly charisma, no odor of sanctity. And, once consecrated, these individuals often do nothing special with the gift they have been given. If they are not occultists consciously using the sacramental power to further their, their own spiritual growth, if no one else's, or spies, using the consecration as a convenient and impenetrable cover for other business, then they have nothing left to do but look for someone else to consecrate and thus boost their own egos, if only for a short time." Unquote. Now, to bring it back to Walter Breen and Marion Zimmer Bradley, they were both ordained as priests by Bishop Michael Eitken, placing them in the same line of apostolic succession as David Ferry. Moira, however, didn't know or really care about this type of thing. All she knew and cared about was that she, as a child, now had men in her house, dressed in priests' clothes, picking up street boys, child prostitutes in other words, and I quote her saying, while wearing clerical collars, they would pick up young boy hookers in San Francisco, feed them, bring them home with the promise of rescue, and use them for sex." Unquote. She states that they were frequently around the ages of 12 or 13. Mara Grayland explained how their house's property had a house, and then it, there was like a two-story carriage house in their backyard. Almost like a barn, but partially unfinished, partially finished. And the upstairs of the second building was informally called the temple. In association with this, they had a nonprofit called the Center for Non-Traditional Religion. In this carriage house on the second story, they had a floor where there was a giant pentagram on the floor. They had an altar with a candle that they always tried to keep burning, both as a symbol of fire and of eternity. On the altar, they kept a dish of salt, a chalice of water, and a knife. They kept a magic cabinet with various crystals, statues, silver jewelry, and a ritual knife. Bradley ran a coven of witches called the Dark Moon Circle. Moira remembers that they would do various rituals. She does not describe this as being particularly traumatic. She described it as being stupid and dumb. <laughs> she also notes that she knew all about it, she would see it sometimes, and that she in fact helped sew some of their ropes. There's a whole thing where she really got into like making costumes for, you know, society for creative anachronism events. It was like a a good hobby for her. So she knew all about their robes and all that horseshit, right? So the Dark Moon Circle, Coven, it taught, you know, and they focused on three aspects of the goddess, the maiden, the mother, and the crone, also known as the wise woman. This triple identity made up the triple goddess. Moira remembered other pagan rituals which involved group sex to channel the spirits of gods and goddesses. 
She was allowed, thankfully, to abstain from participating. However, they did make her go through what they called a puberty ritual. She described it as having to get nude in front of the coven, and then they, like, gave her some gifts or something. Almost like a, I guess, pagan bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, I guess. Now, over time, the Dark Moon Coven became the Covenant of the Goddess, or COG. And that was Bradley's thing for a few years before she got into, like, the Norse paganism. <laughs> One of the best parts of Moira's memoir is how often she would clown on her parents for this type of thing. She said, The last thing I wanted to be was either skyclad, which is to say nude, or in nothing but a thin magical robe around a bunch of fat, oversexed creeps, whether I was related to them or not. Now, eventually, Marion Zimmer Bradley founded AOR, or the Aquarian Order of the Restoration. If you'll remember, that Isaac Bonewitz guy talked quite a bit. He had that, like, Aquarian Defamation League. All that Age of Aquarius shit. So... Bradley's group, the Aquarian Order of Restoration, they had an objective to restore goddess worship to mainstream culture. She recalls that they held a sword to her throat and swore her, and swore her to secrecy, though she can't recall what they swore her to be secret about. To circle back to Michael Eitken, Moira described him as, quote, a fan of gay sex, leather, and LSD. Unquote. She discussed Eitken's curious connection to Timothy Leary, and then also mentioned that Eitken died due to complications of AIDS in 1989. She said, Eitken helped my parents invent their very own Christian sect and called it Gnostic Catholicism. I know, I know, that's a bit like dry water or vegan hamburger. Michael had already ordained my father as an archbishop years before. His series of ordination classes culminated with him ordaining my mother as a priest and Lisa, Don, and Don's lover, Kelson, as deacons. I was required to go to my mother's ordination after years of watching her be a pagan priestess. I was repulsed, finding the whole thing to be idiotic. I have no idea whether she took it seriously or whether she regarded it as the equivalent of a new merit badge. When Michael... Eichen laid hands on her. During her ordination, there was a loud thunderclap. This was interpreted by my parents as a symbol of great and wonderful things, but for me it was, but for me it seemed more a sign of divine disapproval. I halfway expected her to be struck by lightning. Unquote. Additionally, Moira chose not to discuss satanic ritual abuse directly in her autobiography but it was included in the deposition of Elizabeth Waters. And we'll get to, you know, when and why Elizabeth Waters was deposed, but I will quote from that deposition now. Side note, I am necessarily abbreviating or abridging some of it for podcasting purposes. Just know that you can read the full text in the book and that I am not, you know, misleading when I'm abridging this, right? <clears throat> Lawyer, are you aware of the term satanic ritual abuse? 
Lisa, yes, I believe so. Lawyer, has Moira Breen ever told you she believes she was a victim of satanic ritual abuse? Lisa, yes. Then there's, you know, about a page of quibbling over definitions of satanic ritual abuse. Lawyer, could you please tell us what Moira Breen told you about her belief that she had been a victim of satanic ritual abuse? Lisa, she said that some men in white robes tied her up and hung her on the wall and poured hot coffee on her and spilled, I think, spilled hot wax on her skin and killed a baby in front of her and killed a grown-up in front of her and gave her something to eat and told her to eat something, some funny meat and told her it was her baby brother, but she's never had a baby brother. She said a lot of stuff and none of it made sense. Lawyer, have you ever read any letters addressed to Marion Zimmer Bradley from Moira Breen regarding the satanic ritual abuse? Lisa, I think so. There have been so many letters, it's hard to remember them all. Lawyer, have you read Moira's letters to Marion Zimmer Bradley? Lisa, some of them. I did not routinely read everything Moira wrote to Marion because that was mother-daughter correspondence, not business correspondence. Lawyer, did you ever ask Marion about any of these allegations of satanic ritual abuse? Lisa, I don't remember. I might have told her that Moira was saying this stuff. Lawyer, has she written any books on satanic ritual abuse? Has Marion ever written any books where that topic was discussed or incorporated into the theme? Lisa, yes, it's in some of her occult novels. Lawyer, what are the names of those novels? Lisa, Dark Satanic, The Inheritor, Witch Hill, that's all I can think of at the minute. Lawyer, do any of those novels involve the satanic ritual abuse of a young girl? Lisa, no. Lawyer, do any of them involve a young heroine who is abused by Satanists? Lisa, no. Lawyer, do any of them involve a young woman? Lisa, there is a character in the novel The Inheritor named Emily who is rather loosely based on Moira in that she was a music student, a very talented one, and there is a character in the book named Simon who is dating Emily's older sister and he is an adept, I guess a white adept, and then he was in a car accident and injured his hand, and he was a piano player and this upset him very much, and he was willing to do just about anything to get the use of his hand back so he could get back to playing the piano. He hypnotized Emily. He was teaching her to play the harpsichord, and part of that was the teaching. He took her to what sounds like a sort of pseudo-Rosicrucian ritual where she just sat there. She was their token virgin and was sitting under the rose, whatever that means. And that was all he did to Emily. What he did later in the book was to try to sacrifice a child who was mentally defective and was one of the older sister's patients. The older sister was a therapist. And the good guys came in and told him that this was a really bad idea and he decided not to do it then smashed his hand so completely that he would never be tempted to do this again, so he sort of repented and returned to the light. Lawyer, when was this written? Lisa, sometime in the 1980s. Lawyer, before victim name redacted? Question mark. Lisa, yes. Lawyer, has redacted name 
Ever been identified as being molested? Lisa, yes. Lawyer, and before Moira had told you about the satanic ritual abuse? Lisa, yes. Lawyer, do you know where Marion got her research on the satanic ritual abuse? Lisa, she read The Golden Bough. She read the books on the Order of the, I think it's called The Order of the Golden Dawn. She read Alistair Crowley's work, and I think they made a lot of it up. After all, she was writing fiction. Lawyer, do you know if there was ever any satanic rituals performed at the Walter Breen Marion Zimmer Bradley House? Lisa, I don't know. Lawyer, is your answer that you don't know if it was ever practiced at their home? Lisa, to the best of my knowledge, none of the people at Greyhaven, that's the house name, are Satanists. Lawyer, the question was, do you know whether Satanic rituals were ever performed? Lisa, no. End of transcript. I will refrain from assessing these claims for now. In 1979, Walter Breen was the keynote speaker for NAMBLA's second conference. However, in 1980, Walter Breen's mental health had deteriorated even more. Now, at this juncture in his life, he had paranoid schizophrenia, he was some kind of bipolar, he had depression and suicidal ideation, so he went out to find a therapist, but he specifically tried to find a therapist that would, I guess, he tried to find an enabling therapist. He found Dr. Jack Morin, PhD. Morin was the author of the book Anal Pleasure and Health, as well as the book The Erotic Mind. He was a famous and celebrated sex-positive therapist. Here is a tribute upon the passing, I guess, sort quasi-obituary, of Dr. Maureen, entitled, Inspired by Love and Guided by Knowledge, Remembering Jack Maureen. Jack was a doctoral student in psychology, and his great ambition was to apply the principles of humanistic psychology to the study of sex and the practice of sex therapy. Sex therapy was still a new concept. Many in the field believed that it was their business to determine for the rest of us what was and was not quote, normal sexual behavior. Words like perversion and deviance still appeared in scientific papers on sexuality at this time. Jack's mission was to change all of that. In a time when so many of his contemporary therapists pathologized minority sexual preferences, he wanted to respond to all of his patients from the humanistic principle of unconditional positive regard. And in the field of sexology, he wanted to replace ancient prejudices with scientific rigor. Unquote. That's right, you heard that. Minority sexual preference. I think now the term that some people are running with is minority attracted person. And that Dr. Jack Morin met them with unconditional positive regard. Now, he treated Walter Breen for a few years, uh, or I think maybe just a year, but it was an ex like an extended period of time. Like, I think at least a year, I'm pretty sure, but 
Dr. Morin did cut off their therapy when the Child Abuse and Neglect Reporting Act of 1980 passed. This would have required Morin to report illegal acts or to lose his license. Of course, in this case, this meant Morin would cease the doctor-patient relationship, not that he would ever dream of reporting everything that Walter Breen was telling him to the authorities. By the time Moira became a young adult, she got a good therapist who enabled her, eventually, to get to the point where she could report Walter Breen. And particularly, it was on the occasion of a recent abuse of a new, younger boy that she witnessed. Because a lot of this would happen when she wasn't around, where she sort of knew, but also the psychological toll of reporting, you know, your own father. She got to the point where she was finally able to do it, and this therapist helped her. So, Moira Grayland told the Berkeley Police Department about the abuse of this specific boy. She also, upon their request, told she told them about at least 22 children who Walter Breen had abused in the past. She also told them about the drug use, the whole family's behavior, even about Walter Breen's grand vision for the sexualization of all relationships. On April 23, 1990, after a long investigation, Walter Breen was arrested by the Berkeley Police Department. Now, initially, a lot of people did not want to testify against him, whether, you know, neighbors or acquaintances. But the evidence was overwhelming, so he was convicted. Walter Breen was sentenced to three years of probation on November 30th, 1990. If this strikes you as perhaps unnecessarily lenient, yes, almost certainly it was. But, but according to the court, it was for a single instance of molestation and no priors functionally. So I guess that was their justification. But because he was convicted, more victims then came forward. And then, Walter Breen was charged with eight felony counts of child molestation. He pleaded innocent to these charges. By this point, Walter Breen was sick. He had been refusing to seek medical attention for a growth in his abdomen. Several family members speculated that this was his way of committing suicide. In prison, however, he didn't have a choice, so they sent him to surgery, where they removed the tumor, much of his colon, and feet of small intestine. By the time they got in there, he had metastasis all over his internal organs, and he had stage 4 liver cancer. I'll quote Moira here. His book, Greek Love, had come up during one of the hearings, and he had reportedly tried hard to convince the judge that what he had done to his victims was right, and that the laws should reflect that. The judge did not agree and sentenced my father to a total of 13 years at San Quentin. The judge noted his total lack of remorse and a total lack of concern for the victims and determined that he was too dangerous even to be allowed into a hospice to die. 
the judge believed that he, even though he was terminally ill and wheelchair-bound and almost blind from cataracts, the judge believed correctly that he would re-offend from his hospital bed if given the chance. Unquote. Breen was kicked out of the American Numismatic Association. And I quote Moira again. The other inmates hung a sign on his wheelchair saying Chester the Molester and beat him savagely. The next year, an ambulance driver told me that he had transported my father and had beaten him up in the ambulance for what he had done to kids. Walter had placed, Walter had been placed in the general population even though the judge knew what the other prisoners would do to a child predator, unquote. Walter Breen died on April 27, 1993, in the prison hospital at Chino Penitentiary. He died before they ever got to transferring him to San Quentin. To top it all off, it fell to one of Moira's siblings, Patrick, who had to go through all of Walter Breen's estate. Patrick found a huge amount of child porn, art books featuring children, and, presumably, magical items such as dead bats. He also found policy position papers for NAMBLA. I believe Moira said that Patrick burned just about everything. Now, we're at the end of the story. I'm left with so many questions. I would like to think that this was not an elaborate exercise in masochism. I was very curious about Walter Brain anyway, but this episode started out as a grudge against Jack Sarfati, where I was attempting to disprove several of Sarfati's claims. I believe that there's more than enough evidence to disprove what Jack Sarfati said to me on Twitter. I do not have enough of a background to criticize his work in quantum physics. I would recommend people listen to that aforementioned Subliminal Jihad episode, The Copenhagen Deception to get a taste of why Sarfati is probably also full of shit on that front as well. <laughs> it's probably even worse than that because he was into even kookier stuff than what they're talking about on that episode, but nevertheless. I think that I have proved that Jack Sarfati lied. He constantly lied. I think he's probably a bad person. I doubt that he'll ever listen to this, but... You know, like, just objectively an enabler to Walter Breen, for one thing. Like, you really goes to show, you know, what a person is like by the company they keep, things of this nature. I would say that with Walter Breen, this is not a simple story, uh, like, of intelligence facilitating Walter Breen. I think there are, in fact points in his life where that happened, but the whole story is much more complicated. That said, we do know Walter Breen was, quote, discovered by a spook-turned-coin collector. Then Breen worked with Dr. Sheldon, the guy who owned nude photos of every freshman in the Ivy Leagues. Together they studied New York City super kids for the group that became Sandia National Laboratories. That is an extremely spooky thing to do. How many super kids did Walter Breen molest? What was the purpose of the study on super kids? 
Why were they doing parapsychology research? Why did UFOs tie into that? What did they find? Why would they allow Walter Breen near kids? I suspect strongly that Walter Breen molested at least one super kid, particularly Robert Bachelot. For the exact reasons that Bachelot went on to engage in both coin-related scams, and he published Walter Breen's book, Greek Love. I don't see any way that that could have happened without, you know, the molestation. It just doesn't make sense to me. Next, Apfelbaum, the scammy lawyer telemarketer who hired Walter Breen, we know that he monitored Breen to keep him from molesting people at coin conferences. You know, valid question. Do you think they ever facilitated his abuse? Do you think they ever facilitated him abusing kids to keep him happy? I don't think this is an irresponsible question to ask. And, to the same end, why was Apfelbaum so paranoid? Why would you have multiple polygraphs for, you know, like, what, like, what is going on here? Then, I want to ask, where did Walter Breen get his idea of the grand vision, the sexualization of all relationships? It's such an antinomian concept. It certainly has magical, if depraved, resonances. Did he get it from the Catholic priest that maybe abused him in West Virginia? You know, like, where, like... Where did he get this idea? Obviously, he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but, like, still. What are we to make of Walter Breen and Marion Zimmer Bradley being wandering bishops? Why would they be interested in that? Why are wandering bishops so uniquely bizarre and nefarious? What was the purpose of this pagan revival stuff? And the allegations of satanic ritual abuse... I want to note, Moira doesn't claim a single thing that is outlandish or unlikely, and it is entirely in keeping with the court documents, the crimes that Walter Breen was found guilty of, all of it. And like, Moira describing these rituals, mostly she's pretty measured in describing most of it as like pagan sex nerd shit. She literally helped sew their ritual robes. Like, this isn't like some of the crazier of, like, the some of the Franklin stuff or some of the Monarch stuff. It, like, everybody knew that this family was into pagan stuff. It was not very occulted. What were those bats? Like, her brother Patrick finding dried bats? What Like, what's that about? What about the darker side to sex positivity? Exactly like when does sex positivity bleed into irresponsible territory? I will say that in researching this, I found way too many very uncritical blogs talking about Michael Eitken, you know, different of these like priests that did not contextualize him well, did not talk about this darker side of things. 
you know, why did Dr. Maureen fail to report Walter Breen? I think that a lot of the sci-fi community rightfully distanced themselves from Walter Breen. But why did, like, why was it not universal? I would just say, throughout this whole story, Walter Breen embodied for me, like, just the absolute worst traits of hippies in the New Age. He was an uber-hippie. Tie-dye, smelly, unkempt, you know, lazy. <laughs> Fundamentally still sexist and chauvinistic, like, just the ultimate in unmitigated self-indulgence to excess, utterly unconcerned with how his actions influenced others. It all felt very True Detective Season 2. Specifically, like, not the real estate stuff, but, like, all of the, like, Esalen Institute knockoff stuff with Detective Bezzarides, for those who know Season 2. Which hard recommend on Season 2, as always. Like, specifically the hippie molestation subplot. Just literally the worst person, Walter Breen. Even separate from the abuse, which is like, obviously, that's what makes him the worst, but like, throughout this whole story, there are just so many little details that just drive me insane. Like, what were those power sigils that Breen referenced doing with his hands? Where did he learn those? What are those? What was up with his vision at Glastonbury with the purple flames? Why was he invited to Princeton to talk about the occult? And Tolkien. Why did Sarfati bring him to Esalen? He didn't see fit to answer that when talking on my thread, right? It's not like everybody didn't fucking know he was a pedophile. <laughs> but sure, let's listen to Jack Sarfati opine on whether Donald Barr, you know, did this or that with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, sure, man. And where did Walter Breen get those hallucinogens? Like, yes, drugs were not hard to find in Berkeley, but like, still. Why did Patrick Breen report receiving LSD in a medical context as a kid? You know? Like, we already know that Breen was involved with, like, Sandia National Laboratories. Why was Walter Breen involved with a catastrophist, of all things? Why exactly is science fiction filled with pedophiles? Like the authors. What was the foundation for the gifted child, which Walter Breen cited in his Mensa biography? You can find... You can find it registered in the state of New York. I want to say it was registered around 1952 or 1953. Couldn't find hardly anything. I would like to keep digging. Despite all of these questions, it is not hard to read into his death some kind of fitting poetic end. His entire body filled with rot, just like his soul, abandoned. No one who loved him just surrounded by abusive inmates, stuck in a living hell before he died. And at the end of the day, the suffering doesn't necessarily make anyone feel better either, but at least he suffered. As promised, I will end by citing Moira Greyland 
to conclude. I am not writing this book because I am looking for sympathy, nor do I need anyone to confirm or support what I have written in the pages that follow. My experience is my own, and I am primarily speaking to those unfortunates who have shared an experience that is similar to mine. You may see yourself in these pages, or you may not. My hope is to bring a measure of healing to all those who need it, and to give a voice to the voiceless. Regardless, coming out of the last closet means I am finally free to tell the truth about my life. If you are still trapped in a closet, I hope you will feel someday the same freedom to tell the truth about your own. And then she quotes the Bible, Mark 9.42 of the New International Version. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Four sources today. Of course, I used the book The Last Closet, The Dark Side of Avalon by Moira Grayland. I will say, there's so much more that I didn't include. It would be worth reading, for sure, if you are interested in this topic. I also used Sinister Forces, The Nine, A Grimoire of American Political Witchcraft, Volume 1 by Peter Lavenda. I used various articles from Coin World, which I cited, you know, at the time. And I, you know, cross-referenced and checked a bunch of stuff, so I, I didn't save all those. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. You're already on Patreon, so just, you know, tell a friend about the show. I really appreciate it. See you next episode, and God bless.